William Cooper's life, all nine years of it, from 1731 to 1800, was a continual dark storm that simply would not pass. When he was six years old, young William's mother tragically died while giving birth to a younger sibling of his. As Cooper grew up, he was relentlessly and terribly bullied by other boys at the school that he attended. And then as he grew into manhood, he, he and a young lady, they fell in love with one another, only to find that her family would not support a marriage. And this marriage that they both desired so desperately would never come. And then finally, throughout much of his adult life, William Cooper dealt with terrible mental illness, including multiple attempts that he made to take his own life. The dark cloud of tragedy seemed to follow Cooper for the whole of his 69 years on earth. Now, this is a pleasant start to a Christmas series, right? Let me tell you about a random guy who was dealt a terrible hand in life about 250 years ago. But, we're going to revisit Cooper later in the sermon, but has it ever, maybe in the totality of your life, or maybe just in seasons of life, you have found ways that you might be able to resonate with William Cooper, where you feel as if you're like Charlie Brown and you can't get out from under that rain cloud, no matter how hard you run, no matter which way you go. Maybe that's what this whole year has felt like for you. Maybe that's what the, next, the last five years, last ten years, or even your lifetime has felt like. And you know what's totally unnerving or, or, or truly unnerving as you walk through such seasons as that? Questions like this start to rise to the surface. Questions that William Cooper asked himself. Questions like, does God even exist? If he does exist, does he love me? Or maybe he exists, but and instead of loving me, he is actually working for my harm. He would actually desire to bring harm to me. You ever ask questions like that? Have you ever asked, have you ever had somebody that you were seeking to share the hope of Christ with, to share the message of the gospel with, only to find that they ask questions like that and you found yourself not knowing how to answer? Well, what we're going to see in Ruth 1 is that though you may feel as if God is silent and that he has made you bitter, God's seemingly faint hand is at work for your good. Let me say that again. Though you may feel as if God is silent and he has made you bitter, his faint hand, his seemingly faint hand is at work for your good. Let's read Ruth chapter 1. I invite you to follow along silently as I read. We're going to, I'm going to read the whole chapter. I'm going to introduce you to a family, particularly a woman named Naomi, and her daughter-in-law named Ruth. Follow along as I read. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. And the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. 
They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard, heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth, the Moabite daughter-in-law with her, returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Though you may feel as if God is silent and he has even made you bitter. God's seemingly faint hand is at work for your good. I want us to make our way through this passage. Seeing three acts. First in verses 1-5, through five, the apparent seemingly silence of God. Second in verses 6-18, to 18, the loud cries of Naomi. And third, the silent yet present hand of God in verses 19-22. to 22. First, the silence of God. Immediately in verse 1, we are given critical context information for understanding what was going on in Israel, and particularly in this small village of Bethlehem. 
So you read in verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now that line, when the judges ruled, you might just read over it, just say, okay, that's a time when uh, judges in Israel were ruling after the people moved into the promised land, but before a king was raised up uh, in this unique season in the life of Israel. But it's not just a timeline thing. It actually reveals, if you were to look back in, uh, at the very end of the book of Judges, right before this, the book closes with the words, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So the, the people of Israel, during the time when the judges ruled, they were a people of moral and spiritual ruin, of, of, of decay, outright, blatant, total disregard for God, and total rebellion against his word, against his law, against his commands. And so the judges are, and the, the reference to the judges and the reference to a famine that had come upon the land are both indicators of the terrible spiritual health of Israel. It's likely God brought this famine upon them as a form of discipline to bring them back to their trust in him, to, to hold them faithful, to hold them accountable to the covenants that they had made with him and he with them. This promised land they once entered that, was told, that they were told would be uh, full of milk and honey was no longer full of milk and honey. And so at the outset of our story, understand at the most basic level, there's a, there's a famine in the land. A man and his family are having a hard time making ends meet. And so they move from Bethlehem to the land of Moab. Now, after reading this, it doesn't seem to be such a big deal. The end of verse 1, and they moved from Bethlehem and Judah and went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. Frankly, it seemed to be a place that perhaps was safer. Moab perhaps had better job prospects for Elimelech as he tried to provide for his family. Bethlehem to Moab, though, we have to understand as we read the word Moab in this book, and both right here at the very outset and all the way through it, the author, the author of Ruth is wanting us to see uh, an incredible texture of, of what is happening in this story here. Moving from Israel to Moab was not like if you were moving from Situate to Abington, let's say. Not like, oh, I got a job that way, I'm going to be a little closer to work. No, it was more like if you were moving from Situate to Afghanistan. And the reality is, is that the people of Moab were firm, harsh uh, 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 enemies of the people of Israel. They worshipped false gods of the Israelites. They were opposed to the people of Israel. There was a long history between these two peoples. So imagine that you have neighbors that are moving, right? What the author of this story wants you and I to get is to have this kind of reality set in as we read that they moved to Moab. Imagine you have neighbors that are moving, and you go out and uh, you see them loading up the truck. They've got the for sale sign in their yard, and you go up and talk to them. Let's say their names are Bill and Sarah, and you go to say you go to say to Bill and Sarah, "Oh, Bill and Sarah, I, I hate to see you're moving away. It was, it was a joy having you in the neighborhood. Uh, where, where are you moving to?" And Sarah kind of gets her look in her eye and says, "You know, well, you know, Bill works in marketing, and, and jobs have just been really tough now for." Over a year, you know, this economy is hard. And, and he lost his job and he's been throwing resumes out all over the place and just hasn't been able to find anything. And eventually, though, he, he has found what we're, we're really excited about. It's a great marketing job. It's with this company. I think they're called the Taliban. Have you ever heard of them? And, and you look at them and you think, oh, 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 oh I've heard of the Taliban. You're, you're moving that over there? Elimelech, Naomi, and their two sons, Malon and Kilion, are moving to Moab. A place and people ardently opposed to Israel, and more importantly, opposed to Israel's God. The Moabites were born of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters in Genesis chapter 19, if you want to go look at that. 
The king of Moab, Balak, hired Balaam to curse Israel in Numbers 22, verse 1. In Numbers 25, uh, Moabite women seduced Israelite men to worship the gods of Moab. And then back in the book of Judges, right before this, in chapter 3, verses 14 to 30, King Eglon of Moab imposed some almost slavery-type rule over the people of Israel as the Moabites conquered these parts of Israel. So the original audience of the story, they are utterly scandalized about this family and their move to Moab. And so as the author of the story continually references Moab, what he's doing is he's wanting us to see this. He's wanting to say, see this? See the scandal of Elimelech and his family moving to Moab? It's not that they're going there for a better job. In a very real sense, it's that they're turning their back on their God who has brought them to himself and brought them to the promised land, and they are leaving. But an unorthodox family move was only the beginning of the torment for Elimelech, Naomi, and their sons. Particularly see the unrelenting loss and grief that awaited Naomi once they had Moab. Follow along as I read verses 3 through 5. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. And these took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah. The name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died. The woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So let's reset here. 10 years after a famine led to this family leaving, Israel, leaving Bethlehem, which ironically the word Bethlehem, the name Bethlehem, the town Bethlehem means house of bread. That's what translation means, and Bethlehem has no bread. Famine is all over the land. And now they've left, and they've arrived in Moab, and Naomi looks up 10 years later in a foreign land bereft of both her husband and her two sons and two daughters-in-law are with her, and she doesn't know what to do. And if you were to glance again at verses 1 through 5, you would just see cold, hard facts. No speech, no consolation, no, no, no platitudes, whether they're empty or not. Just, just cold, hard facts, as if you're reading it in a history book. This family moved, these people died, Naomi's left, there you go. And what this is doing is it's setting the stage for this apparent silence of God in verses 1 through 5 as all this hardship and evil and loss and death and grief befell Naomi. This silence is now preparing itself for speech of Naomi. But as, before we get to read verses 1 through 5, and you see this just decade of pain with nothing but cold, distant silence from God, this might be where you step in and say, yeah, I know that feeling. Decades of pain, wondering what God is doing, wondering if he is there. In fact, take a moment to look back over the last 10 years of your life got a nice round year to do it, so it's 2020, so look back to 2010. Rewind the kids in their ages 10 years if you can. Rewind yourself in your age 10 years, maybe take out a little gray, take out a few wrinkles. And how have the last 10 years gone? I hope that there have been great joys, but undoubtedly there have been ways in which the path of your, your life, the direction in which you thought you would go, has gone sideways. What would you say were the dreams or the hopes or the wishes that you had 10 years ago versus where you are today? Where has tragedy reared its ugly head? And where have you felt, perhaps even if God did not work like you thought that he would or like he should? And as you look back over 10 years of 
most recent 10 years or just find 10 years in your life that have been hard. And where it seems where God has been seemingly silent, now let's go meet this grief-stricken woman, Naomi. We've got the loud cries of Naomi now in verses 6 to 18. A moment ago I said it seems that God has been silent, but verse 6 is our first indication that maybe God has not been as silent as first appeared. So as God brought relief from the famine in Bethlehem, in verse 6 it says, Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. Why? You see the last part of verse 6. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Verse 6 is our first indication that maybe God hasn't been as silent as we were first led to think. So as God brings relief from famine, Naomi resolves to go back home, even if she is traveling back without her husband and sons. Where they moved there together as a family 10 years ago, no longer are Elimelech, Malon, and Kilion with Naomi, but she just carries 10 years of sorrows and tears back with her. And she carries a sense of hopelessness that would lead her to urge Orpah and Ruth to stay in Moab. She says to them in verse 7, so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go! Return each of you to her mother's house, and may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. In verse 8, Naomi actually pronounced a profoundly moving blessing upon Naomi and Ruth when she says, May the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with me. But they wouldn't have it, as you see in verse 10. Verse 10, they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. So Naomi says, go find husbands elsewhere. Go, go find hope elsewhere. It's going to be hard going back to Bethlehem. Stay home in your families. Stay home with your people. And they say, no, we're going to go with you. And so then Naomi gives it to him in verses 11 through 13. And you, have you ever been in that boat where, where you're trying to be honest with somebody, but you don't want to be too raw. You don't want to be too emotional. So you try to, try to give it to them straight, but hoping they can kind of read through the lines because you don't want to come off too, too strong. I think that might be a little of what Naomi's doing here. She's trying to be firm with them. Don't come with me. It's not good for you. But it doesn't quite register to them. And so Naomi, going on, she lets loose. She says, okay, no more filters. I'm going to give it to you straight. I'm going to give it to you straight when she says, turn, verse 11, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you refrain from marrying? Pause right here. In in that day and age, in this day and age of Naomi and Ruth and Orpah, a husband was not just just someone to love, but, but... he was tied up with, with the, the protection for these women, with, with provision for these women, with their security, with their long, long-term health in so many ways. And so Naomi is not just saying here, we're single and we, we don't have anyone to love. She's saying our future prospects are so dim. Why would you come with me? Even if I were to have a husband and, and have a child nine months from now, you can't wait until that boy grows up. But then she gets to the heart of what she's really saying. Verse 13, the last part of it, when she says, No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Now we hear the truth from Naomi. She feels that God has left her. 
She feels he has abandoned her. She feels he has brought terrible tragedy upon her. The love of God that she heard about for so much of her life seems to have run dry. When have you felt like the hand of the Lord has gone out against you? When have you been bitter towards God? What do you, what do you, what do you feel he did or didn't do that made you bitter? Was it that he, what was it that he made you feel like this? Did you suffer the untimely loss of a loved one? Perhaps you were praying for their salvation. You were praying for them to become a Christian. And they passed away before you saw that happen. Maybe you've experienced unspeakable abuse or mistreatment or harm at the hands of another. The hands of an adult in your life. Or a spouse or a partner. And you feel as if you will never be the same person again. Maybe it hasn't been a famine that has come upon us this year, but it's been just this year, COVID. It's wrecked your work, it's wrecked your livelihood, it's wrecked your well-being. It hasn't led you to Moab, but it was a virus that led you to recognize that you don't believe very much of what you sing on Sunday mornings in church. The talk of the love of God seems frankly ridiculous for you. You think you know better than that, and life has shown you that God is not as loving as we talk about or sing about on Sunday morning. So you consider all these things, or you consider things beyond the brief few examples that I gave, and you do some self-diagnosis of your heart, and the question isn't, when last were you bitter with God? The question might be, when last were you not bitter towards God? If any of this is you, stick with me through the rest of Ruth 1. Hang on tight. Let's see where this goes. We've read Naomi's words, but now listen to Orpah and Ruth's response in verse 14. They lift up their voice and they wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Orpah goes one way, she goes back home to find another husband, to find security, but Naomi... She loved her, but the evidence, frankly, seemed pretty compelling. Yeah, Naomi, now that you say it, I think you might be bad luck. Yeah, I'm going to go home. I'm going to go find a husband. I'm going to go stay close to mom and dad, and that'll be that. But Ruth, Ruth clung to her, as verse 14 says. Surely she could find a husband if she turned back to her home country. Why won't she go? Naomi asked this question in verse 15. She said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Now pause. We might want to think that Naomi is a strange character for us to look at from afar. But the cries of her heart are actually quite familiar to us. She battles stuff that seems so distant from what many of us know. I don't think any of us have ever had to leave our homes or ever felt the, the weight of a famine that has come upon our land. But where we wouldn't directly fit into Naomi's shoes, we would fit into her heart. In verse 8, she offers a moving, beautiful blessing to Ruth and Orpah. May God deal kindly with you as you have dealt with me. But here in verse 15, she tells Ruth, go home to your gods in Moab. Turn away, daughter. There's nothing for you here. If you walk too closely for me, it's only a matter of time before lightning gets you. Naomi's faith in the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it was very disjointed. This was the state of her whole family. 
we're honest. The name Elimelech, you may not know this, but in the original Hebrew, the name Elimelech means my God is king. But Elimelech's actions in leaving Israel for Moab revealed that he did not trust this God who his name said was king. So as Naomi battles grief, begins to trek back to Bethlehem, what we're going to see front and center in the book of Ruth is that Ruth was to come face to face with the providence of God. That term providence means his power that has worked in accord with his purposes. And I would add, even when it doesn't seem to make sense with our experience. That power that has worked in accord with his purposes, even when it doesn't seem to make sense with our experiences. That is God's providence. And so when the hand of God doesn't make sense, the providence of God leads us to trust the heart of God, that he will work all things together for our good. And Naomi is going to become exhibit A of our God working in a manner that is wildly beyond what we would anticipate or expect. In fact, where Naomi's faith was in tatters, you know who did believe that she could trust the heart of God even when the hand of God seemed bitter? Ruth. This Moabite woman. This Moabite daughter-in-law. In fact, listen to Ruth's response in verse 16 and 17. Naomi urging her, go home, go to your gods, go to your, mother, your mother's house, go find another husband. And Ruth says in verse 16, do not urge me to leave you or to return following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. Does it dawn on you that this is one of the clearest examples of conversion in all of the Bible? Whether the Old Testament or the New Testament, this is one of the clearest examples of somebody who is not a part of the people of God, uh, boldly professing their faith in this God, the one true God, the God, of, uh, the God of Israel, the God, Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, and, and professing their faith in Him and becoming a follower of His. Ruth promises to never leave. In fact, if you, we don't have time for it today, but if you were to look at that word return in verse 16 and then in verse 15, and then you want to make it 6, 7, 8, 10, 11, 12, 21, and 22. I'll say that again if you want to write it down. 6, 7, 8, 10, 11, 12, 21, and 22, and 15 and 16. Then you would see all the times that the word return or turn back is used. And what the picture that is developing that the author of Ruth wants us to see is that to, to follow God and to trust in Him even when the ways in which He's working don't make sense is to turn from the most Moabs of which we live and return to him. The whole chapter is saying turn hardness of heart against God and return to him. It can't just be a matter of geography where you leave Moab and go back to Bethlehem. It must be your heart as well. Possible for our hearts to be in the Bethlehem of this church right now, or our bodies to be in the Bethlehem of this church right now, and yet our hearts be stuck in Moab, angry with God, not trusting him. Bitter at how he has worked in our lives. But providence forces us to ask what we want in God. Not making light of any of the suffering we've experienced. Not making any light of any of the suffering Naomi experienced. But providence forces us to ask, do we expect God to be a butler or a concierge who is supposed to meet our needs and supposed to give us recommendations and guidance based on what we want to do in life and where we want to go in life and how we want life to go itself? Or are we willing to trust our God as our king who rules over us and our father who works for our good, even when we don't understand it? 
Maybe your life, the broken dreams, the pains of the last 10 years, these have brought you directly to this point. Where you're at this crisis, you're at this crossroads. Your heart is more like Naomi, and yet you hear this voice in you maybe be more like Ruth. And as you look at the last 10 years and you see a whole lot of question marks and a whole lot of confusion and you see a whole lot of what is God doing, may I urge you to consider this thought that wherever God has brought you, however God has gotten you, you are at this point where you are wrestling with his word and wrestling with whether or not you will trust in him and believe in his providential care for you. So you look over 10 years of broken dreams and pain even, and you look, and you might be able to say with uh, Ian Duguid, who sums up where we are right now, where he says, in the grace of God, the road to nowhere may yet turn out to be the first leg of the long journey home. If that is you, start journeying towards the spiritual Bethlehem. I'd love to share more about that with you in a personal, private conversation later, if you would like. Just let me know. If there's something else that this whole passage shows us that's absolutely astonishing, it's God's power to bring people to faith in himself is actually greater than our efforts to stop it. Naomi was the worst evangelist or witness. You know, that word for evangelist, it means witness, testifying of God. Sharing about God that that she worshipped or God that she followed with other people who don't worship that God. She was the worst witness that can be imagined. She's pushing Ruth to go back home to her false gods. She talked about the bitterness and even wrong that God had brought himself upon her. So my question, do you feel insufficient telling about the God that you worship with others? Maybe your life is wrecked that you feel like, yeah, nothing about my life would make God look appealing. The God that I've told others about or gone to church for years and years and years. Yeah, I, I say that I worship him, but my life looks, frankly, worse than my atheist neighbor. I don't know what I would say to that person. Or you feel like my own family, the ones nearest to me in life. They've seen my warts. They've seen that I talked about God. But I feel like the biggest hypocrite because they've seen the emptiness of the faith that I profess. Well, in that case, own it. Humbly acknowledge that Christ did not come for the faithful, like we just sang, but for the unfaithful. Maybe this is a message that someone around you needs to hear. Or maybe you feel like the problem isn't you, but the problem's the audience. Who are the Moabites in your life or in your world that you would assume are beyond the reach of God's grace? I wonder if maybe one reason Naomi didn't want Ruth and Orpah to come to Bethlehem with her is because she would be bringing two women with her who would stick out like a sore thumb amongst the people of Israel. Remember, the history between Israel and Moab was not good. So are the Moabites in your own life or in our own lives, the people who perhaps a modern, progressive sexual ethic or understanding of human sexuality and expression that we would say, I don't know how to interact with somebody from that perspective or worldview? Is it the person who suffers from some kind of illness, whether it be physical or mental illness, in which we don't know how to approach or how to interact with a person in that boat? Is it the rich person or the poor person? Maybe you're rich and you don't know know how to relate to people who get by paycheck to paycheck. Or maybe you're poor and you don't know how to get along with or understand people who are rich. Maybe it's somebody of a different ethnicity or somebody who who looks or talks or just is from a different part of the world and everything about them would seem to realize something that is different. Or is it the person who is simply awash in the pleasures and the happiness of this world and this life? And you say that they, by all appearances, they look like they have everything that they need. And in this world where we deny any desire to talk about the hard things of life or deny anything about uh, wanting to describe the sorrows and sufferings that we might experience, 
we don't know how to have an honest and real conversation with them. We just want to act like everything is good and we want to act like everything's going well for us. And maybe that's the boat you're in. You want to put on the facade that everything is great, but you don't know how to acknowledge that under the surface, you're sinking. Well, if that is the boat that you're in, a great gift of God is revealing himself to those who who he shows them that they are beggars in need of mercy and showing them Christ who is our living bread and comes and lives in us. Life at times will be miserable. Prepare for it, honestly embrace it, don't deny it, and live under the shelter of God's wing. So we've looked at the silence of God and the loud cries of Naomi, and now Ruth is coming to Bethlehem, where Naomi wants it, whether Naomi wants it or not, as verse 18 says, as Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, and she said no more. And now let's look again at God and see he's not as silent or distant as we last thought. As we conclude, the silent yet present hand of God in verse 19 to 22 As we read on, we see the reactions of some of these ladies in Bethlehem as Naomi and Ruth, the Moabite, arrive in town. Can't you see them as I read this? Can't you see them whispering? Is that that Naomi? It kind of looks like her, but where Elimelech, where Malon and Kilion? It kind of looks a little unkempt. What happened those 10 years in Moab? Read, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem in verse 19. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Naomi answers these questions in a manner that is about as peaceful and socially comfortable as a train wreck. The name Naomi, it means pleasant. That's what she's getting at. Don't call me Naomi. I'm not pleasant. The last 10 years have been misery and suffering. Call me Mara, which means bitter. God has been bitter with me. And the first chapter of Ruth concludes like this. Verse 22 sums it all up. Naomi returned, Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the country of Moab. Do you see what the author is doing there? Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, came from the country of Moab. Do you think they want us to see that? And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley, barley harvest. Now, if you remember back to verse 6, what prompted Naomi to leave Moab to return to Bethlehem? God had visited his people. Food had come. Famine was over. And now in verse 22, the harvest has come. God is working provision and care for Naomi and for Ruth. Just because you might be like Naomi, and the cries of your heart are so loud, or the dark night of your soul is so dark that you can't hear or see the providence of God, does not mean that he is not active. It does not mean that he is not there. In fact, there was another time when God was at work in Bethlehem, but all the pain in the world and the hurriedness of life, the divine providential care of God when a little baby boy was born in Bethlehem. God's quiet yet faithful hand was at work when nobody noticed. Though you may feel as if God is silent and he has made you bitter, God's seemingly fate hand is at work for your good. Life dealt William Cooper a terrible hand. He lived 69 miserable years. But one time while I was being hospitalized and treated for his mental illness, he heard about God and his mercy towards him. He did not hear about God and his mercy in some abstract sense that had no power for him, but he heard about God and his mercy towards him, William Cooper, directly. And this mercy came through Jesus Christ. 
William Cooper, a man who had, no, who had known little to no mercy for all of his life, was told about Jesus Christ who gave his life so that he, William Cooper, who hated his life, might live. God entered, entered into our misery and Jesus himself endured the most cruel twist of the providence of God as he, ex, as he experienced wrenching death and trusting himself to the eternal purposes of his Father. And he did this for people like William Cooper, and for you, and for me. Now make no mistake, becoming a Christian did not cure Cooper of his mental illness, nor did it make his life noticeably better by any measurable metric, as the world may see. But it gave purpose and brought sense to his life he previously did not know. In the confusion of sorrow came the mercy of understanding God's mysterious providence. Eventually, Cooper wrote a hymn that sums up the providence of God in an astonishingly beautiful manner, a way in which he reflected on it, and a way in which I think Naomi would eventually reflect on it as well. Listen to these six verses of God moves in a mysterious way. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, He fashions up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. You fearful saints take fresh courage, or fresh courage take the clouds that you much dread, are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Brothers and sisters, when you feel God is silent, may you see his hand, and may you see his care through his Son. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray your mercy upon us trust in your silent providential care for us when it seems that the world and all of our experiences are screaming that you are distant, that you are gone, or that you have it out for us. Help us simply to look at Christ. Help us simply to worship through Christ. And help us simply to trust you by Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.